Let's talk about dogs for a minute. You know, it's kind of a, an old cliche, but I think it's true. People would say, if they don't let dogs into heaven, then I don't want to go. I would guess that most of us, or at least most of us who have ever had a dog, would feel that way. Dogs and humans go way back, 33,000 years by some estimates. The, the two species, wolves and people, advanced and evolved together. Wolves became the many dog breeds that we know so well. The friendship is real. If you've owned a dog, you know about their devotion. They'll, they'll give their lives for their humans and, and often have, often do. Uh, they protect us. They act as our eyes and ears. They work with law enforcement and the military. But most importantly, they add so much to our lives as companions. They're absolutely devoted to their masters, if that's the right word, even when those masters are not all that supportive of the dogs. We, we always had dogs growing up. I, you probably did, too. But somewhere along the way, I became a cat person, and uh, I feel the same way about felines, which is probably astonishing to some of you. But it astonishes me and causes so much dismay to imagine that there are people who abuse dogs, who beat them and leave them outside without food or water or abandon them in the desert, drop them off somewhere, drop them off at a shelter, say, ah, we got to move, we got to get rid of this dog, or worse, breed them for use in animal experimentation. You might recall this news story last year or so about beagles, thousands and thousands of beagles being bred, you know, as the breed of choice for these horrible medical experiments selected specifically because they love humans. They're docile. They're trusting. They're small. They don't put up much of a fight when they're subjected to horrific experimentation. You know, some progress has been made uh, December of last year in, in trying to regulate the worst abuses of animals in, in lab experiments involving tens of thousands of dogs every year in this country. And the experimentation, though, continues on dogs and cats and rabbits and monkeys and other primates and other species. What is the benefit? Is it necessary to engage in this kind of barbaric activity? We're going to ask two experts who worked for years on these issues. Uh, they are from the Center for Humane Economy. They join us momentarily. Welcome back. Dr. Zahir Nawli is an interdisciplinary executive scientist. He served in senior positions at U.S. medical foundations. Uh, early in his career, he served uh, on the faculty of a major research universities uh, where he led scientific teams, published groundbreaking work in top journals. He earned his master's degree at Harvard. He got a Ph.D. in physiology and biophysics from Stony Brook University uh, and uh, is a pioneer in developing and manufacturing high-throughput technologies like microarrays. has done a lot of work on genomics, uh, genomic instability, cellular toxicity, and cancer. He knows his stuff when it comes to medical research. Tamara Drake's 30-year career includes founding and running a successful nonprofit, working in high-profile law firms. She's been a volunteer EMT and uh, coordinates research regarding regulatory testing methods for new product development. She's uh, monitors agencies, federal agencies, and other government agencies about rulemaking. She's co-authored three citizens' petitions to the U.S. FDA on behalf of the Center for Responsible Science. Both are involved with the Center for Humane Economy and is here to talk about animal experimentation and testing. Thank you both for being here. Thank you, George. Happy to be here. Thank you, George. Can I call you Tammy? Please. Okay. Um, <laughs> Let's talk about dogs for a second. I, I'd like to start off on sort of a positive note uh, about animals before we get into the, the tough stuff. Um, about how far back humans and, and dogs go, the relationship, what you think about it, uh, how real it is. 
Uh, you know, I've heard people say, ah, oh, the only reason dogs like people is because we feed them. Uh, doctor, what do you think about that? Yeah, actually, this. First of all, thank you so much, George, again for the introduction, but also for uh, the wonderful uh, intro regarding dogs that you that you just did. Uh, if we go back to the ancient Egyptians and to the Phoenicians and the Chinese and all the ancient cultures, dogs were actually centrals. Uh, not because we feed them centrals in our existence, not because we feed them, but because they are uh, true companions. They have feelings, they have the temperament uh, that will make them feel us, connect with us, um, and uh, they are, you know, the man and woman's best friend, best uh, companion. Uh, so, uh, so that's how how we look at at dogs. Dogs give us happiness. Animals in general. Uh, but particularly the dogs, because we develop this kind of relationship with dogs that is unique, and that is cross-cultural, uh, cross-religions, and uh, whatever your persuasions are, dogs are, um, When whenever you see a dog, you have a smile on your face. Uh, Tammy, same sort of question. You know, you hear the, the, the statement often said, we don't deserve dogs, and I have to agree with it in many of the cases. I agree 100%. I am owned right now by one dog. Her name is Rue. Um, I've had dogs my whole life. Actually, my family dogs, when I was growing up as a kid, when I lived with my parents, were beagles. So, you know, I have a great affinity for, you know, it's the main breed that they want to test on. But we don't deserve them. They're amazing. They're empaths. They know when you're sad, you're upset. They're feeling sentient creatures. And, you know, I don't know what I'd do without my dogs and cats, by the way. I have three of those, too. Uh, you know, I think of them, you know, see dogs and cats and think about interesting work being done about consciousness and, uh, you know, the boundaries of that frontier science and trying to figure that out and whether or not we humans are the only species that has it. I don't think so. It seems like dogs have some sort of an internal life going on that, you know, they have uh, they feel pain. They think they 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 feel uh, bonds for sure. Love. Uh, I can't imagine um, anybody who's ever owned a dog being willing to uh, conduct experiments or breed dogs to go into these labs and be carved up. Tammy, you mentioned beagles. Can you bring us up to date on beagles? It seemed like we saw a lot of news a year or so ago about shutting down certain labs that were breeding beagles, but I, I'm going to have to guess that that has not stopped altogether, has it? No, it hasn't, and it's going to take time. We're on that path. We're definitely on that path. There's a new awakening in the thought of using alternatives. Not only is it more ethical, we're not harming other sentient beings, it's sound science. So the lab, the breeding facility that was in Cumberland, Virginia, that was shut down last year by the Department of Justice, had 4,000 beagles. They had one veterinarian for 4,000 vehicles, beagles. Can you imagine going to the hospital and having 
one doctor for 4,000 patients. Uh, unbelievable. Yeah, it was horrendous. So fortunately, all of these animals were taken, adopted out. They were rescued. But we have a bigger problem. We can't rescue our way out of this situation. There is a, a breeding facility in New York, and it's uh, a beagle breeding facility. It's called Marshall. And I was reading a paper that said they had 23,000 beagles at Marshall. So there's a demand, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Of course, we know, you know, with the FDA Modernization Act, we are allowing now, we changed an 80-something-year-old statute that absolutely mandated the use of animals for developing new drugs and vaccines. We changed it to allow for the use of non-animal methods that are more sophisticated and better represent human biology. So we're moving in that direction, but, and we can talk about it as we go along. There's a lot more work to be done. But, but I believe with the passage of the FDA Modernization Act, things are changing. The shift is, is going to happen quickly. We just have more work to do. Doctor, I don't know if you have these uh, figures uh, off the top of your head, but can you describe sort of the magnitude of animal experimentation, animal testing in the U.S., how uh, the types of species other than just dogs that are involved, and how many animals overall we're talking about? So, so for dogs, for instance, we have up to 60,000 dogs, 60, dogs that are in registered facilities used annually for primates. Uh, the number is around 70,000. Uh, again, these are enormous numbers. Again, this is per year. And it represents several fold increases since the early 2000s. So we are going in the wrong direction in terms of high proliferation of use uh, of, uh, and abuse of these animals. And like Tammy said, there is a great demand and there is, you know, there is a reason for that, uh, particularly for dogs, because they tend to be um, cheaper and uh, particularly beagle. They are docile. They don't complain too much. Uh, they are small. So they, you can pack several uh, together without uh, too much trouble. Um, so there's an economic incentive for really using dogs in uh, animal experimentation. So the numbers are, are huge, George. And uh, one thing Tammy mentioned is, is, is the FDA regulation that, has, that was the guidance uh, up till uh, December 2022, again, because of the work of, of the Center for Humane Economy and the formidable work that Wayne Baselli and his team and Tammy did, Animal Welfare Action, um, this has changed, but it's going to take time. Uh, and to summarize it very briefly, uh, the guidance from the FDA has always been that uh, two laboratory animals needed to be used uh, for uh, in preclinical testing for, for a phase before it goes to clinical trials. Uh, one small animal, one large animal. The large animal typically is, uh, is a dog or a primate uh, or a cat. 
so uh, there has always been a, an increased demand for uh, for for these type of animals to be used in, uh, in animal experimentations. That's despite the fact, George, that uh, to 90-95% of uh, experimental drugs fail in human clinical trials for safety and efficacy reasons, although they passed safety and efficacy in dogs and other animals. So well, the translatability here is, is dismal. Uh, no matter how you look at it. Well, let's get into that a little bit. You've worked for medical foundations. You've worked at major hospitals and universities. Right. You, you know right. about animal research and how it translates. <laughs> you know, I've seen these surveys where uh, the faculty at medical schools, even the students would say, well, you know, animal experimentation, that's necessary. And uh, we'll tolerate some of it, even if it involves pain for the animals, because they are under the impression that it's valuable and will lead to cures for major diseases. Is that true? That's not true at all, and that's the, that's the biggest misconception. Uh, George, you have to realize that th- there is a huge lobby and a huge uh, you know, animal industrial complex that is driven by, uh, by, by, by profit uh, in, in, many, in many aspects. Um, and let's step back a little bit. I, I want to dig deeper into this, uh, if, if you allow me, you know, just 30 seconds. Sure. Sure. The first, uh, look, you know, the scientific discoveries uh, are always exciting. And in the 70s, the first uh, what we call transgenic uh, animal model was produced. And that was a big deal. And what does what that mean? It means we acquired in the 70s the ability to cut the genome, to cut pieces of the DNA and move it from one place to another. Now, that's what they call recombinant DNA or the recombinant uh, era, which was very exciting. In fact, I decided to, to become a scientist uh, eventually because I wanted to learn more about molecular biology and this ability to move the DNA and, 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 and clone it and do stuff with it. Okay, so that was an exciting discovery. And scientists at the time felt that now we have the solution to all uh, the diseases because we can just remove or put a gene in a different place artificially uh, using animals. And that will help us understand more about uh, diseases. But the reality, 30, 40 years of experimentations have told us that is that was an absolute disaster. And that was the time in the 70s and 80s where billions of dollars were pumped into this genetic manipulation and artificial model systems on dogs, on other animals, rodents as well, um, and they led us astray. So, so the hyperproliferation of animal use we see, you know, started in really the 70s and 80s and climax in the, in, in the 90s and in 2000. Now we're realizing that the, trans, you know, the, the, the predictive value uh, of these animal models is very poor. That's the technical term used in, in, uh, in academia and in, in the clinic. The problem here, George, is that um, there are hundreds, thousands of scientists and labs that are using these animals, and they have built a career and a program 
based on the use of these animals. And we can talk about the role of NIH in, in a second, if you like. Um, and it is very hard for them to change course unless there are incentives to adopt new technologies and learn uh, non-animal testing methods. That's a lot to chew on there, but it yeah. basically you're saying, look, the the results are not reproducible. What what people are trying to find out in carving up animals, it just does not translate to humans. And if you don't believe that, it, the proof is in the pudding because the drugs that are being developed don't work. Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. And there are two factors here that one has to establish uh, for a drug to move forward uh, and and be accepted. One is safety, the other is efficacy. Efficacy. Right. Efficacy yeah. and safety. Yeah. What, we, what we mean by safety, toxicity. You know, is this drug toxic? Does it cause liver toxicity? You hear a term called DILI, drug-induced liver uh, injury, which is a measurement of toxicity. So the first thing they do on these drugs is they measure them for toxicity. And once they establish that they are they have acceptable toxicity profile, they move then to the, to the efficacy. Is that drug efficacious? Can you remove the symptom or cure the disease? So two things that really one has to always remember when talking about drug discovery and, and innovation in, in pharmaceutical science. Safety and efficacy. Safety and efficacy can be achieved in animals. For, certain, for hundreds of drugs, for thousands of drugs. The problem is 95% of these drugs fail eventually when they are tried in humans. They are not reproducible in humans. The, the term we use is not reproducibility, is they are not translatable. There's no translation from one species to the other. So you experiment and carve up and poison tens of thousands of animals a year in these labs because that's the way it's always been done. And the results are just not, certainly not worth the, the pain and suffering, but not worth the, the money even that goes into it, I would think. Absolutely. We're, we're, talk Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. we're talking about animal experimentation with Zahir Nali and Tammy Drake of the Center for Humane Economy. When we come back, we're going to get into some tough stuff. We're going to describe what these experiments involve, what are done to these animals. We're talking about animal experimentation. At the top of tonight's program, I mentioned this 1930s law which required animal experimentation, required animals to be sacrificed by the FDA for any new drug that was going to be approved uh, in terms of whether or not it had anything to do with safety or efficacy. Millions of animals were sacrificed in the decades that followed uh, for no appreciable benefit. Last December, that changed. The FDA Modernization Act was passed in large part because of the work of our guests tonight and the Center for a Humane Economy which uh, at least removed the mandate uh, that required it. Now it's allowed animal experimentation in, in uh, development of new drugs, but it's not forced. There's still a long way to go, though. Tens of thousands of dogs and other animals are sacrificed or carved up or injected with poisons. In a moment, we're going to hear about the, some of those experiments, so uh, better gird your loins and get ready for what's about to come here as we continue our conversation on Coast to Coast. Tammy Drake, you're the Director of Research and Regulatory Policy for the Center for a Humane Economy. You led the charge in getting the passage of that FDA Modernization Act 
and I'm sure it felt really good, and it was a heavy lift to get that done. Describe for me what what uh, the situation is now in terms of animal testing and experimentation. Um, what kinds of things are done? I know it's it's tough stuff to hear this. What kinds of things are done to dogs and cats and primates and other species? Yes, it's, it, it isn't pretty. And when you're looking at testing for pharmaceuticals, primarily they start with safety pharmacology and general toxicology, right? They're looking at cardiovascular system, central nervous system, um, gastrointestinal, respiratory, all of that stuff. And then they have to try to find a safety margin for a first-in-human dose. In that process, they are using rodents and non-rodents. For instance, if they're looking for acute toxicity, they'll use 20 rats, dogs, or primates. And when they do that, everybody dies, right? And in most cases, and Zahair can correct me if I'm wrong because I've never worked in a lab, thankfully, um, all the animals are killed. You know, they go into subchronic testing, chronic testing over time. They use more and more animals, and they kill them because they want to do a necropsy to see what the heck happened inside. So they basically inject them with whatever drug or oh, poison yeah. it is to the yeah. point where, oh, that's the, the dose that kills them. Exactly. And it actually, that's exactly what they do, and they have to bring it down to where they have, uh, they call it Noel. Correct me if I'm wrong, Zahair. You're the scientist. Well, you're, you're no right. no um, observed adverse effect level. Right? So yes. what they do is they'll start as, okay, that killed everybody. Let's go down a little bit. Okay, that killed half of them. And then they'll keep trying till they get to a dose where everybody seems okay. Um, it's gruesome, you know, and as an animal lover, um, you know, it's reprehensible. But then they have other, they have to do, uh, Carcinogenicity, sometimes they do ocular and skin irritation, phototoxicity, and then they do efficacy testing. And when we're speaking pharmaceuticals, pretty much everybody dies, all the animals, whether it's the monkeys, the dogs, the mice, the rats, the cats, um, whatever they're using as a model. And uh, and primates. Uh, oh yeah, doctor. I, yeah, primates. I mean, uh, doctor Zahir, isn't uh, wouldn't primates be? Uh, you'd think that they were, the results from that are more reproducible. Well, what kinds of things are done to primates? I think you mentioned seventy thousand a year that we know of. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. So you would think uh, you would think, George, that uh, primates are you know, they are believed to be closest to us terms of you know behavior and, uh, and and physiology but the reality is even in primates there are fundamental differences uh, between us and them that uh, do not translate uh, when it comes to medical sciences I 
give you an example of COVID-19, which is, you know, everybody here is familiar with this. We went through that ordeal, all of us. In fact, uh, non-human primates uh, did not get COVID. They have a structural um, uh, difference in the way receptors work, uh, make them more immune uh, to, uh, to COVID infection. Um, and therefore, they are terrible as a model to study that of uh, infection. Imagine if we, uh, in fact, there hasn't been a recorded uh, non-human primate dying from disease burden uh, or, or multifactorial system failure, the hallmark of uh, COVID-19 death. Uh, so, so, so from the get-go, George, uh, the, the, again, the translatability is not is not there. But let's assume, uh, you know, given the the, the, the general uh, belief that uh, primates are close to us, um, uh, there is there is a fundamental issue with uh, with primate in terms of. Uh, leading us down uh, you know, a rabbit hole when it comes to the pharmacokinetics and the dosage that Tammy has just talked about and uh, that, you know, the lethality and how do you take that, that dose and apply it to humans. So um, you have heard recently about uh, the shortage of primates. Uh, I, I, you know, this, this has broken out that story last, uh, last year. Basically, uh, we used to import a lot of primates from uh, from China, and Tammy is actually is an expert on this. And I wrote an opinion uh, piece for, uh, for 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 Truth Out uh, last uh, last year on that, um, where I where I chronicled the issue with the primate and. Uh, and 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 the futility of using using primates. I mean, to cut a long story short, uh, shortages from from the imports of primates have been somewhat compensated from Cambodia, uh, but then again, uh, that has been uh, mired with uh, smuggling issues. And Tammy can actually shed more light on this um, to the point that the fish life uh, handed indictment several indictment criminal indictments in November of 2022 um, again reducing uh, the imports from from Cam Cambodia um, and the animal uh, uh, enthusiast animal research enthusiast uh, I should call them animal animal research enthusiasts um, have been uh, trying to increase the breeding programs, the domestic breeding programs of primates, and that is a, that's a terrible idea. That has been a, a quest for decades, uh, and they have used this uh, particular instance uh, uh, of the shortage in primates for laboratory testing to kind of uh, promote that agenda. Tammy, I want to talk about uh, the primate experimentation. Before we get into the regulatory situation, can you tell me what is done to primates? Is it the same as with dogs? They're injected until they die? Yes. I ask because I've seen these these yes. uh, horrible photos of where uh, these little monkeys have their heads shaved and their brains are cut open while they're alive and awake. Yep, They and they put them in, and not just for, you know, if you look at basic research, as well as drug development, like NIH-funded. We have seven national primate research centers here in the U.S. 
and NIH funds all of them. And some of the experimentation is so shocking. For instance, they here in Oregon, I, I live in Oregon, the Oregon National Primate Research Center um, does a lot of experimentation on drunk monkeys to the tune of probably $30 million. And then they got another grant to do drunk monkeys and COVID. And there's another experiment that was very famous that happened here in Oregon, and I, I don't think they're doing it now, but it was a maternal obesity study. They would get, you know, impregnate, and I think these were Reese's macaques monkeys, um, feed them a high-fat junk food diet, and then when the offspring is born, they'd take it from their mother and scare the monkey and then cut the baby monkey's brain open to see what happened. And I don't know, George, I don't know about you, but tell me how does that benefit us? I'm trying to figure it out because if you think most of the research for HIV AIDS vaccine has been done on non-human primates. Many were done on chimpanzees. We don't experiment on chimpanzees in the U.S. anymore. But 30 to 40 vaccines in approximately 90 clinical trials involving more than 20,000 human volunteers, every single one of the vaccines failed. Every single one. It cost our tax dollars billions. And it's been 30 years. Yeah, you know, the NIH, the National Institutes of Health. That sounds like a respectable outfit. Mm -hmm. I, I just read, you know, working on cancer and really big stuff. But uh, reading about the things that they allow, that they permit, uh, it's, it's a terrible blemish. Uh, Zahir, you must uh, work with these folks over the years. Uh, can you give me the broad oh, picture on oh, what yeah. they approve? Yeah. Yes, and I, I was, you know, I was funded by by NIH, and I, I so I, uh, so first of all, it's, and I know folks at NIH personally, and I've worked with different uh, program officers, and I can tell you that uh, the, the 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 staff of the NIH uh, are some of the most dedicated uh, people you will you will ever meet in your life. So so the issue is not about the talent at the NIH or the issue about the politics that interfere with the work of, uh, of the NIH and the special interest groups. So the NIH is, as you know, is a, is a $45 billion uh, a year. Um, that was the budget of 2022, $45 billion. This is We are talking a huge number. And for the last seven years, George, uh, the budget of the NIH has been so uh, it's wonderful to have to, to be in a country where science uh, is funded and appreciated. Um, our position is that a lot of the science that is funded, particularly the science that is going into animal research, uh, which is by some estimate is 47%. Total NIH budget. Oh. So we are talking here about uh, 
entire, you know, like you know, 25 billion, 20 to 20. This is not a small amount of money every year. Um, you know, we believe that a lot of that uh, is actually uh, supporting uh, wasteful research. And that is a tragedy uh, because the mission of the NIH is really to, uh, to, to, to promote human health and to advance the innovation and discovery uh, of um, the molecular basis of the diseases in order to uh, translate that into uh, remedies and, and cures and treatments. So, so there is an issue there, George, a fundamental issue, a, probably a $22 billion issue a year in terms of using the proper modeling and funding uh, innovative research that needed to be funded so that we do not get a 95% failure rate when we translate uh, the what they call basic, basic science experiments in, in mostly on animals into uh, human um, uh, human action and outcomes. So, so, so there is there is a huge issue there. Uh, but I, I, I mean, I, I give the uh, the folks at the NIH. Uh, you know, good credit for 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 being so dedicated to uh, to, to to finding cures. Uh, one thing that the public does not know is that actually the NIH does not fund uh, science. Now, you know, let me explain what I mean by that because that sounds like blasphemy. What what the NIH does it assembles on committees and study sections. Uh, uh, Members from the academic uh, committee community, so they bring you know scientists to review these grants and rank them. So who really decides at the end of the day, the committees uh, made up of scientists uh, in ranking uh, and evaluating grants. It's really not the NIH. It's 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 the, it's the scientific community, and that scientific community is 99 percent. A bias towards uh, animal experimentation. So you can you, know, you can do the math and get, get to the conclusion mm-hmm. that uh, unless that changed radically, unless we have a radical change in the process of how we we evaluate grants uh, and um, you know spike these commitments with individuals who really understand what we are talking about when we talk about alternative methods to animal testing, innovative technology, artificial intelligence, organoids, organ on a chip, and these type of new technologies that are more human relevant. We are going to continue to to perpetuate the error and and, and, and continue to fund, uh, um, unfortunately, projects that uh, will lead us nowhere. Well, you would think NIH, with all their expertise, must know that these billions of dollars are being wasted, uh, you know, that it's, it's not producing what they want, that, it, that that money could be put into something that is far more productive right. and may actually right. make some progress on these right. issues. I, I, right. You know, uh, we're going to go to a break here in a second. I'm going to have to stop you. But I also want to get into, on the other side, um, Representative Dina Titus, who was on this program a week ago, talking about these wild horse roundups, equally barbaric has uh, introduced uh, legislation, bipartisan basis, that would ban NIH from funding foreign animal experiments. I guess they've found a way around some of the regulations on experimentation in this country, so they're outsourcing it to foreign countries. And when we come back, I want to jump into that and then 
uh, get into some ideas on what the money could be better used for, uh, ways that might actually work in solving diseases and helping humanity and saving animals at the same time. We're talking with Zahir Nali and Tammy Drake about animal experimentation.